Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Kaiser Education Series. My name is Gabe Derman, and I'm a human performance and education specialist at Kaiser, and I'll be moderating today's panel alongside Nick Higgins. Today's discussion will focus on the importance of sprinting and the considerations that go into planning and programming for developing faster athletes. We have an incredible panel tonight. We can't wait to learn from them, so I'll get right to the intros. Our first panelist is Derek Henson. Derek is a CEO and founder of Running Mechanics Professional and is an international sports performance consultant and educator. Recognized as a leader in the human performance world, he has worked for over 30 years as a sprint coach and has been consulting with professionals and national team organizations and collegiate athletic programs for over 20 years. He specializes in speed development, strategic performance planning, return to play protocols, and ESTEM technology. Our second panelist is Clint Martin, a former track and field athlete at Iowa State. Clint currently serves as the associate head coach for the University of Texas Athletic Performance, where he oversees men's and women's track and field programs, the men's program fresh off their indoor national championship just over a month ago. He's been the primary performance coach for over a dozen Olympic medalists and worked in the private sector developing speed and power for professional athletes. Our third panelist is Les Spellman, who is the founder of Spellman Performance. Les is one of the top speed performance coaches, training athletes across a variety of sports, including NFL, Olympic, USA Rugby, NCAA High School, and youth. He is currently traveling around the U.S. on the Spellman Performance Speed City Tour and is joining us from Las Vegas, where we'll be attending the NFL draft tomorrow night. Just a quick and cool story before we begin. Um, my first ever internship in strength conditioning was in the summer of 2014 at a private facility called EFT Sport Performance, just outside of Chicago. Uh, I just finished my first full day, half the gym lights are off and I'm vacuuming the turf. And in the corner of the gym, two guys are training. And as I finish up cleaning, I curiously walk over to talk to them to start a conversation. Uh, as it turns out, one of those guys introduced himself as Les. Uh, at the time, Les was finishing up working at EFT, and I think it might have been your last day there, Les, and he was yeah. preparing to move to California to chase his dreams in the performance world. It was late, but he wasn't in a rush and gave me all the time I wanted. I listened as he spoke passionately about everything he wanted to accomplish, and I got to say I felt pretty inspired and fired up walking to the parking lot and driving home that night. Uh, it's amazing and humbling that almost eight years later, uh, we're on this webinar alongside some incredible coaches and people and Derek, Clint, Nick, and plenty of other people listening in. Uh, I know it's an extended intro, but I just believe it's a great lesson for everybody that's here tonight. In this field, you never know who you're going to meet, run into again, so it's important to treat everybody with kindness and respect. Um, so back to the KES, which is what you're here for tonight. Uh, let's get this panel underway before I hand it off to Nick for the first question. A reminder that we will allot some time at the end for a Q&A, so please type any questions you have in the chat, and we'll do our best to direct them to our panelists. Nick, you take it away. Awesome. Thanks, G, and obviously thanks, everyone, for being on this and tuning in. You know, Derek, we kind of want to start with you. Uh, as far as what's the importance of a lot of this track and field, we're seeing a really big push now with sprinting, especially in the, well, the technical or just kind of how we're trying to perceive what track and field coaches are doing and applying to team sports. I mean, what suggestions or what advice, you know, again, why is this so important for our team sport athletes to be following some of these principles? Yeah, I, if, I mean, I coached track and field probably from 88 to late 90s before I really got into strength and conditioning. And so that was the, um, I have a bit of a biased um, progression. So that's, that's where I got all of my knowledge in terms of running, testing, jumping, whatever, and even how I integrated weights. <clears throat> so, um, I found it was very helpful. Uh, does everybody have to do that? Not necessarily, but I, I think it's nice to have a background in track and field because you're always looking at performance in terms of running times and jumping distances. And you're always being, there's always an accountability uh, component to it. So um, 
I think that's, that's, that's important. Like, are you improving? And, you know, like I used to do triple jump. Um, if I lifted 500 pounds, I squatted 500 pounds of weight room. I wanted to make sure that that contributed to my jumping distance. Cause that's what I was getting paid for essentially. Um, and if it didn't, then we had to make an adjustment. So I think that kind of, um, logic is very important. Now, does everybody have to train like a track and field athlete? Not necessarily, because if you're, you know, and, 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 and I'm sure the other guys can corroborate this when you meet somebody who's a great NFL player, or NBA player, um, they have very specific talents and, you know, do I make them into a track and field athlete or do I, you know, or were they taught as a track? Most cases know that nobody's even taught them how to run. So they've managed to uh, get to the, the place that they're at through just talent and self, you know, regulation and all that and, and natural selection. And so, you know, I, I think there, you have to keep all of these things in mind. It's nice to have an organized approach, like, you know, that I had with track and field in terms of planning and periodization and obviously the technical components, but you're not going to superimpose track and field training on a team sport athlete. You're going to have to know how to break it down and go, okay, this is what we have time for. Uh, two sessions will work on acceleration or starts and, and, and maybe some, maybe some max velocity if that's relevant. But I think you have to, you have to take what you can from track and field and, and apply it to your specific circumstances to make it work for you. I, I, you know, cause I know there's some really bad track coaches too. So you can't say track and, and I hear people saying that everybody should join the track team. Well, my daughter's in high school and she has a horrible track coach and I just, you know, tearing my hair out, seeing what they're doing. Um, you know, but she joined the track team and she has to attend four practices and they don't teach her anything. So, you know, I'm, I'm very guarded about, you know, forcing people into track, get a good coach, you know, and, and make sure that they're guiding your performance. So that's been my experience. Yeah. And for you, Les, I mean, you've worked with tons of uh, athletes at many different sports and elite levels, I guess for you, from your experiences, what are maybe some of the key things that you've taken away from track and field and that you've tried to apply into your programs? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I ran track in college um, and I wasn't very good. But the reason why I ran track in college is I broke my femur my senior year of high school. And essentially, like, I wanted to learn how to walk and then learn how to run. And then essentially I got to college and I was like, want to walk onto this team. So I walked on and I was, you know, admittedly probably the worst in the team first year. Second year, I was like bottom 25 percent and I finished out like middle 50 percent. Um, but never, never really good. But I, you know, so I'm, I'm obviously biased in this answer. But what I think is like, you get some of the best minds in the world, working with some of the best athletes in the world. And they've been creating models around acceleration and max velocity. They're collecting data on these guys. And, you know, my philosophy is like, you can't go broke making a profit. So you're looking at the best in the world and you're taking some of the best minds and, and following along with what they're doing. You know, guys like Derek have been in the game for 30 years. Uh, you know, Dan Paff has, a, you know, obviously a track background. You know, they're researching the best ways to figure out um, how to accelerate and how to transition and how to hit high velocities. And that model that they've created, there's aspects of that model that can fit into team sport athletes. Um, like a big argument, I'm sure Derek hears this a lot and you guys do as well, but uh, team sport coaches will be like, well, we don't do a lot of upright running in our games well there's there's aspects of learning how to run upright that can prevent injury also increase performance i mean there's no other exercise you can do in the world that 
reaches velocities of 10 meters per second horizontally. Like, so there's a lot of um, transfer even from the physical and stimulus side outside of the technical world. And I think where um, a lot of like track coaches, you know, get into the team sport world and they think, okay, like let's, let's just focus on mechanics versus like, let's get into the team sport world and bring the stimulus that, you know, we get from the track, whether that's volumes, intensities, um, drills, things like that. And then add in just like the strength part of doing it. So the plyos and all that, and then layer on the technique on top of that. And, um, not, you know, understanding that the team sport athletes will, will probably not fit that technical model. And it shouldn't be like the main focus, but there's aspects of that technical model that you can bleed into uh, training. So, yeah, mine is biased. I mean, my mentors have been Dan Path, Jonas. And I've secretly been learning from Derek, obviously, and, um, you know, Ralph Mann. So all those models that I borrow from have come from track and field. It hasn't come from a team sport coach that created a sprint program, you know. Um, and there's a lot that we can like pay homage to in that world. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's not like it's, um, we're going to come up with a new way to run tomorrow. You know, <laughs> it's like people have been running fast for a long time and the changes in speed that have happened over the, over the past, you know, decades have, have been more due to surfaces and, and spikes and things like that. I, you know, I think overall we've very gradually increased our velocities, but um, there's a model that's existed for a while that works and it doesn't really need a ton of altering. So. Yeah. And you kind of hit on a good point and I kind of want to follow back up with you less about the importance of plyos, you know, and you've done a great job through your social media, through the hops, skips, plyos that you've kind of promoted. Um, maybe you can kind of discuss how you integrate that in a weekly or maybe how you align that with some of the themes or sessions that you're trying to do, or maybe for those who are listening, kind of some volumes or recommendations that you would give. Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, with like the walk, march, hop, skip, all those, um, you know, if you take Derek's microdosing approach, like those are things you can consistently pattern um, and, and put in the program throughout the week. So we do at least two days of, uh, we call them vertical drills. So that's like walks, skips, switches, triples, those types of drills. Um, we'll, we'll accumulate volumes of like two to three times 10 uh, and progress to sometimes 15 yards. Uh, we do a lot of dribbling. Um, it's just more of a cyclical axe velocity pattern. And we do it really just for, we do it for the contacts. Uh, so we're getting faster contact times, but not necessarily at super high speeds. Uh, and then there's a technical component to it. Uh, but we, what we found is that like patterning the athletes, we could teach them during those phases. So during the vertical drills, we could teach them about posture. We could teach them about leg action. We could teach them about how their foot can contact the ground. Whereas I've found at high speeds, it's been a little bit more difficult to go to an athlete and be like, while they're running, like, hey, fix this, do that, or in between reps. And I've just been really careful um, about feedback during those moments. So I've found I can give more feedback during those periods and then kind of build the model from there and, and know what I'm teaching. So if I'm teaching projection, I might have the same vertical drill, like a walk or a march or a skip, but I might have the athlete cueing more of the hip region and get them really hyper-focused around the hip and then transfer into more horizontal drills, like let's say just a wall drill or a prowler march, where we're still focused on the same thing. Then when they go to run, you know, their, their emphasis is, is still on that hip region and we're cueing everything specific to that. So I found it's a really easy starting point for me. Um, 
like part of my story is like I, I was in a really bad car accident where I broke my femur, but I also had a really bad head injury. So I had to learn how to how to read again and, and talk and how to do speech therapy and all that. So the way that I learn is is in steps and I have to uh, do everything in steps. So when I'm reading and going through content, I'm, I'm learning in steps. And then as I try to apply it, it, I try to find a logical beginning point where I can start teaching a single concept and then bleed it into more complex activities after that. So, um, yeah. No, and it's kind of interesting you brought up and it's Clint for something I want to kind of ask you is a lot of these things are probably done at the track or with one coach and then they come into your realm, which is the weight room. You know, you play such a unique role at Texas that we were just speaking about you traveling full time with track and you've been part of a lot of success there. I mean, how have you been integrated or how do you take what you hear from the track coaches or when you attend those practices and how do you essentially create your programs or adjust them based off what you're hearing that their practice sessions were or maybe certain the phases that the track coaches say that they're in? Yeah, sure. I mean, for me, the biggest thing is going to be to make sure that the main thing remains the main thing. So the most important thing for us in season is going to be track training, right? First and foremost. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, like all training should be coinciding. Like everything should be together. It shouldn't be what's happening on the track, what's happening in the weight room, what's happening in the training room. Everything should be one pie, right? So that's the big thing we try to make sure that we're doing. We try to make sure that the track and the weight room complement each other. So I get the track workouts before I write anything in the weight room. I write everything on a weekly basis and I make sure that what we're doing in here is not taking away from what we're doing outside, but we're adding. So we want to be a, we want to be make sure we're not a detriment, but that we're complementing. So that's the biggest thing for us. So it depends on what their focuses are. Um, and then there's redundancies, right? There's a lot of people who want to try to do the same thing that might be happening on the track, but based on your dosing and based on what that athlete is, that might be too much. They may have done that too much already. So you might not be eating the, the adaptation that you actually think you're getting. So for us, we want to make sure I look at joint angles a lot. What joint angles are we at outside is an acceleration day. That's going to be more front side. So where are we at in the season? We're doing a ton of front side stuff. So we need to prepare them for backside mechanics. Or do we need to prepare the hamstrings for what we do when we get to top speed, which isn't happening yet. So it kind of depends on where we are in the season, but it's making sure. And that's, that's what coaching is, right? You got to make sure that you can make everything complement each other. You know, in your personal opinion, have you found more success either kind of polarizing it or to stack if they are doing maybe the acceleration or max velocity to try to be more specific? Or do you think, again, it's maybe better to lay off some of that redundancy and try to work, focus on things that maybe they're not getting from the track? I guess how much is too much? Does that make sense? Yeah, it depends on the time of year we're in. Um, so at the beginning of the year, like it's cool for me. I'm in, I'm in an interesting situation where I get all the athletes first. They don't go to the track at all. I get two weeks with everyone. And we do a ton of like what Les was talking about with hops and skipping and like really low amplitude sprint work just to see kind of how we're patterning and how we're hitting the ground. And if we're even ready to go outside and sprint, most of my athletes, when they come in as freshmen, don't know how to sprint, um, which is crazy to me. Um, but that's kind of what we're dealing with. So for us, um, we want to make sure that um, we want to make sure that when we're complementing, if the if the volume outside maybe high, maybe it's the fall, maybe the volume outside is very, very high. So we're doing hills, we're doing acceleration work. That might not be the best day for me to come inside and do the exact same um, joint angle inside where we're producing power. I might do something that's going to be a little bit more focused on things that we haven't done, but with the same energy system, does that make sense? This time of year, what this time of year, when our, our intensities are super high and everything's going to be a little bit more top end speed, a little bit more, less of a knee bend per se, when we're hitting the ground, like that's when we can do a lot more complimentary stuff where it's very similar and a little bit more specific. 
No, it's just kind of good points. And you know, I want to ask you one kind of follow-up and then I'm going to ask yeah. both Derek and Les their opinion is, you know, one thing that we sometimes hear is, you know, you're strong enough or we use certain KPIs that we think in the weight room or in the track uh, help us kind of design programs. So there's certain ones maybe that are not track related that are specific to your weight room that you then kind of feed to the coaches that kind of help them in an instance, or maybe some things that you're really looking for as it relates to the weight room, trying to maybe transfer back to the track. So it's pretty cool for us. Like I've been working with this coaching staff for four years um, and we collect a ton of objective data outside of the track. Um, so we have pretty much buckets for all of our um, event groups. So men's hundred, women's hundred, men's 200, women's 200, triple jump, whatever it may be. So we found things that matter for every group, things that may not matter for 200 guys might not matter for my 400 guys, a little bit less. Um, so we found different buckets that matter and it's all over the board. It's kind of crazy. Um, but we definitely have found things that matter. So specifically for my sprinters, we want to run fast, in a straight line. Um, body composition is super important for us. Um, that, that really matters. And we can talk about mechanical load and what that does a little bit later if we need to, but that's something that's really important for us. And then for my hundred meter, 200 meter, our short guys, the short sprinters, um, strength relative to their body weight is very important, obviously as well. And different exercises, it may not be a power clean or squat, um, but for what that individual athlete does, it may be very relevant. Yeah, and Les, you've been highlighting some of your force velocity profiling that you've done, uh, I think in particular using the 1080 and kind of how that's helped you create your programs or set certain athletes into certain phases and goals. Can you maybe kind of discuss that and why you found it successful? Yeah, for sure. Um, and that, a lot of that comes from JV Marin's work. Uh, essentially what we did is like, we were trying to find a way to scale what we're doing from a training perspective across like multiple facilities during combine and we have like literally six to eight weeks and I'll, I'll talk more about combine later I'm sure but it's a really short period of time so finding ways to get the right adaptation um, and the right stimulus to the athlete that's specific to what they need so the force velocity profile is essentially allowing us to look at how they accelerate to their peak velocity and if put it simply which part of the, the acceleration phase are they um, weaker at so is it early excel or are they unable to get to a higher velocity within a couple of steps uh, or is it the middle phase is something breaking down or do they just not reach a high velocity so the force velocity profile has allowed us to kind of figure out is the approach that we're going to take to gaining power which is our goal is it going to be more of a force-based power so we're going to look at early acceleration or is it going to be more of a velocity-based power so more of a late acceleration or closer to velocity. And the truth is, it's like, as we were doing it, we started out where we were looking at dropping guys in buckets and starting them at the phase they need to get better at. But what ended up happening is we realized that we really need to start everybody at the same place. So everybody needs to work the qualities on force-based power, early acceleration, and everyone can get better there. Um, but some guys need to quickly move towards more velocity. So they're gonna move towards the velocity-based power a little bit faster within their program. So if you look at eight weeks, you might have some guys that spend two weeks where it's a heavy resisted run or early acceleration-based activities like a med ball throw to sprint or heavier in the weight room. And then they might transfer into more of a weight acceleration and velocity phases earlier, whereas some of our guys stayed in that heavy phase for a little bit longer, um, obviously looking at the rate of return. So like if a guy stays in that phase too long, then you know, the velocity qualities will diminish. But um, essentially what we tried to do was create a, a four-tiered system 
where you have like the really bad early accelerators that did not were not good runners and not strong as well. Uh, and then you have the guys that are okay early accelerators, but pretty much everything else is not good. And then you have the guys that are good excel good early accelerators, and weight acceleration is probably the weakest point. Then you have the fourth group where guys are just good, and it's very rarely the guys are in the last one, but two and three will compromise like most of the guys. So what we're able to do is also with load velocity profiling is once we put them in those buckets, we were able to get them a specific power stimulus. So maybe some guys are at 80% body weight on a sled versus another guy might be at 25% body weight on the sled, but it's all based around their velocity decrements. So uh, we know that power occurs at half their velocity. So we're finding those numbers that match up with their power uh, their peak power numbers. And then we're very specific in the stimulus that we're able to give them. So it was a way for me um, to really manage like my ADD because I'm always like, oh man, I want to like go to this phase or go to that phase or jump them into here. But you know, their numbers are telling us they're not ready for that yet. Um, so it was a way to get a very individual stimulus and it worked, you know, we we're, we're, we're still improving it. It's not like, Hey, this is the perfect thing. Um, but we were able to see some good success from it. Yeah, that's pretty interesting to hear. And Derek, for you, I mean, as it relates to KPIs, maybe some of the things that you're doing in terms of the assessment evaluation to help design programs for athletes, what are some of the key things that you've kind of found as either landmarks or technical things that you want to see before, as we've kind of said, whether bucketing or putting them in certain programs? Sorry. Uh, I would probably say I'm pretty old school, like a good old fashioned stopwatch with cones every 10 meters is a good test for me to figure out where things are. If I'm a little more creative, I might have some sort of timing system, but I'm pretty lazy generally. So um, if I can film it, you know, at 120, 240 frames per second, I can always have that in the can so I can look at it later. But I, I think I'm like the, these two fellas here. I'm look, I mean, you're generally looking at positions that you want people to hit and their position will tell you whether or not they're able to execute the early acceleration, the, the secondary acceleration or max velocity properly. Because if they're obviously, if they're standing up too early, they're going to limit power um, in the initial phase. And if they're still leaning into the max velocity phase, that's going to limit their range on the front side and all that. So I'm, I'm more concerned. I used to time every rep um, and that made me anxious and it made everybody else anxious. Um, so I'll do it more periodically in my training and then I'll, I'll be just looking at positions, landmarks that I, and things like relaxation, some of the softer side, um, and even talking to the athlete, I think is really important. How did you feel? And they'll be pretty transparent about how they felt if that felt good or that felt odd. Uh, everybody's pretty insecure. So they'll offer up some pretty useful information. So I I'd say I'm pretty old school in you know, I used to, I used to set up a lot of different things and technology and now and then I'll throw a GPS on them. I don't even know how accurate that is. I'll do it once in a while, but it's more just to support what I'm seeing visually, I think. Um, because it's just more from a workflow point of view, it just makes it easier, especially if, if you're like, uh, you know, Clint or Les, and you've got a whole bunch of athletes. It's so hard to, to manage that. And I was talking to the guys at Air Force Academy, they got 150 football players. How are we going to manage that? right so five coaches that's 30 per right so um you're trying to find strategies and give people indicators so that they can make good decisions in general i think and that's what i've been trying to do more and more 
Yeah, I think that's always the, the challenge. And, you know, one of the things that we've discussed so far is when we're dealing with healthy individuals, but there are those times that are unfortunate where we have to bring athletes back to return to performance. And so, Derek, kind of going back with you, you know, what are some suggestions or things that you found positive as it relates back to trying to get an athlete to return back to sprinting or maybe some small progressions or check marks that you've really kind of looked at that's been successful for you? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't want to sound reckless, but I try to get them accelerating as soon as possible. Um, I, I, you know, and, and, and I see Clint shaking his head positively, like, yeah, like anybody who's worked with it, you know, there's a window of opportunity to resume that activity, I think, from a neurological, psychological point of view. And uh, an injury doesn't necessarily mean you're, um, you're inept from a movement point of view. It just means you've got to, you know, take some time in your progression. So I use the drills as kind of my screening process. Can you march? Can you skip? Can you run, you know, with a vertical emphasis? And then we add the horizontal with acceleration. You know, the joint angles are supportive of, you know, not stretching the hamstring too much in early acceleration. So within two to three days, if I can't get them accelerating, it's probably a pretty serious injury. But I've, you know, I've had grade twos where, okay, we're accelerating by the third day after the injury. And once you build momentum, and confidence is probably the most important thing with the athlete, then they're able to really get into it and, uh, um, and, and express themselves uh, maximally without any problem. And, and you, you got to figure this is something to do with like, you know, um, just, you know, every species probably has this, like you have to run to save your life kind of thing. So it's going to find a way to do it. And you're just kind of rewiring things to say, Hey, everything's okay. Um, I've had athletes who've had MRIs and they still, oh, there's still a tear there. What do you feel? I feel fantastic. So then you get into battles with the medical people and like, you know, but, um, I try to remain extremely optimistic that I can get them to sprint as, as quickly as possible in a safe manner and capping intensities and making sure the volumes are progressive. Um, but yeah, I, I would say I get them to run as soon as possible and the outcomes are way better, um, usually. Yeah, and for you, Les, I guess one thing I'd be curious is, you know, maybe how those conversations for athletes that you've dealt with who are coming back from injury, whether it's giving them confidence or even discussing with their coaches or anyone on their staff as well, be like, you know what, I think as we kind of all shook our heads, you know, we want to accelerate and, uh, earlier than later, like how maybe those conversations are navigated to really encourage, like, hey, you know what, this is okay. We can start these things now. Yeah, um, well, one of the one of the earliest conversations we have is just about, like physical properties like if you don't like if you don't use it you lose it and early acceleration is one of those qualities where you have to continue um to to train and you have to continue to keep in your system because uh, you will detrain from it pretty quickly um so part of part of it's around there and then also just around like you can train early acceleration qualities pretty easily uh, and simply you could start off with just like you know a med ball throw you could start off one single step, double step, or you can start off with resisted running, which takes some of the pressure off the hamstring, depending on the injury. Um, so like getting back to those qualities early was always a focus. And then using the drills, like Derek said, um, it just confidently pushing them through the phases until some of the drills start to look like running. And some of the things we were doing progression wise, start going five, six, seven steps out. Now it's at higher velocities. Um, but like, you know, my experience is we usually have guys for short periods of time. So uh, reminding them of like the task, okay, like you have a combine coming up in X amount of 32 days. And, you know, I know you, you feel like you 
you want to take some time, but we only have this many days. And in order to get a training effect, we need a little bit more than what you're telling me. So I've, I've been, um, I guess I have like a unique perspective on it. Um, and typically, like Derek said, there's usually some friction between the medical staff. Um, you know, everyone's trying to make sure they can cover their, their ass at the end of the day. So it's, uh, it's always, it's always tough. Um, what we've dealt with in the past was guys come from colleges, the colleges don't release the medical history. So we're trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, day one, we realized there, there actually is a tear in there. Um, we get a second opinion and we have to figure out what's the plan of attack from there. And it's basically what Derek just said. It's finding what can you do? Uh, there's always something you can do. And one thing I learned from Charlie Francis is like, you have to get that stimulus in, even if it's a bike, even if it's a pool, even if whatever it is, you can't just X out that stimulus and go jog or, you know, do the typical rehab where they put you in, um, what is that, the alter G and just run for 30 minutes. Now, those things are good and they have their place. But our goal is to try to mimic the stimulus from a nervous system perspective and, uh, you know, get into that. So if we're missing on that part, it doesn't have to be sprinting, but we have to find something that, that matches up with that, that stimulus. Yeah, and for you, Clint, because sometimes the first thing they say is, you know, they can't sprint, but the individual can start back in weights. Again, as you've kind of taken athletes back to return uh, to performance, what are things that you've either found have been helpful or even just, hey, you know, we're going to start introducing some of these exercises, maybe as a preventative. So if you do go down, you know, we're hopefully trying to take care of some things. Sure, yeah, it's, I really like what Derek said earlier about like, you're injured, you're not inept, and Les kind of touched on it as well. Um, so for us, if we're in season and an injury happens and they happen, um, for me, I want to make sure that their training can still match up as close to what we had planned as possible, right? Because you still, the end timing is still the same, right? Now we just have to figure out a way to get there a little bit differently than you may have thought originally. Um, so for us, like Derek said, I've never seen anyone tear their hamstring coming out of the block on the first step. So if we can get to first step a lot sooner, like the better, right? And the same thing Les was saying with intermuscular coordination, that stuff matters. And you can do it really easily without putting too much demand on that, that tissue. Um, and hamstrings are all different, like proximal, distal, mid-belly, like they're all different. So for me, I'm going to try to figure out where it's at, like what, what are we actually dealing with? So I have a bridge series that I'll do and essentially like double leg from 90, 90 degree knee angle all the way out to about 160 degrees. And we'll see kind of what stresses the muscle. And then we'll progress to a single leg and then we will figure out, obviously, the most challenging being a single leg out at 160 for an ISO. Like for me, I can see where they're at on that spectrum and then figure out where we need to start them and what they can handle. Because it might be a strength problem. It might be a length problem. It might be a little bit of both. Um, but where the problem is, we want to kind of navigate that and make sure we can hit it from both sides. I appreciate you all sharing that. And Les, kind of in your response, you actually alluded to, you know, you're in a unique situation with such a short window with a lot of the individuals you've worked with as it relates to combine training. Can you kind of talk about some of the steps with that window that you work in terms of going backwards with the combine? And again, you've talked about some of your profiling, but again, how you kind of stage them to prepare for the big stage. Yeah. And then there, there's probably a lot of misconceptions about combine training just because it's like, it changes so frequently. Like one of the things to know is that typically you're getting the best of the best guys that are already like primed and super fast and strong already. Like there's aspects of that in there. Um, but one thing to look at is like you're getting guys that have just played some, most of our guys played national championship or playoff this year. Um, so you're, you're basically bringing them in kind of beat up. So the first window is like 
get them back healthy, get them back feeling good. So that looks a lot like some rehab based stuff, but a lot of it's like marching, skipping, drilling, um, and just not even really sprinting yet. So maybe there's some resisted marching. But then what happens is they have these all-star games that are, that are usually like two to three weeks post the season, which is crazy because you're basically going from season, a break, doing nothing, back into full contact football. So a lot of what we're doing is essentially in that phase is getting them healthy and prepping them for that game because the games are important. Senior Bowl is important, East-West Shrine, um, because the scouts are there and you get a chance to like see you. So once you leave that, guys are beat up again. You have another week of getting them back healthy. And then typically you have like three to four weeks into the combine. So it's not a lot of time. So when you look at the time allocation, you have to be very specific on what you're trying to achieve. So from a technical perspective, I haven't found great success in trying to change somebody technically in that window. It, I, you know, I've tried it. I failed at it. Uh, I've had guys that looked good and ran slow. You know, it gets happened. Um, so what I've, what I've found is like, there are technical components that you do need to focus on. And typically those are around the start. So it's around the, you know, the three point stance and the first couple of steps, uh, from there, it's like, I need to be very specific on the stimulus that I'm going to apply, which goes into the force velocity, load velocity side. So am I going to do more force-based power activities and more velocity-based power activities, uh, when we're training them? Or for example, like put it simply, if you, if you look at all four split time, um, you know, the guys that can run the early split times well and then the late split times aren't so good, maybe I'm going to focus more there. So we get very specific on how we're applying stimuluses to interact with each uh, section of the sprint. And then really, it, it just comes down to management. Like, you know when the event is. So it just comes down to what's my last lower body date? You know, what's my last heavy resisted run date? What's my last high speed date? And just work backwards from there to start the deload. And typically the way we deload is we don't really pull back on intensities. We just pull back on, on volumes as we go. Um, so we'll pull back on, you know, basically, you know, all the volume that we're doing of the drilling, we'll get it really basic into like very basic drilling. We'll pull back on the resisted running. We'll do more velocity runs, but with more rest and less volume. Um, and then the days go from, you know, in the beginning, you have a very acceleration-based day. You have a very velocity-based day. And then usually like some type of individual mixed day. But by the end, they're pretty much all, you know, a mixture. It's an acceleration into a high velocity by the end. And it's less coaching. So the real, the real um, difficulties that I, I've had over the past eight years is figuring out when do I talk and when do I not talk. So, you know, in the beginning, I would talk the whole way through. I would coach and correct and fix, coach, correct and fix up until the combine date. And then guys would get on the line and think about all the things that I just told them. So in the, what, I, what I switched to is that, I kind of periodize my coaching voice in the beginning to be very specific on, you know, KPIs that I want to hit. So we're talking projection. We're talking about how to project your body forward, how to project your hip forward, your shoulders forward. And then we're talking how to retract the leg back into the ground. And as we go, we're teaching our teaching, teaching. But there has to be a point where you say, okay, you've gotten the skills and you're not going to learn anything new in the next two weeks. So let's get really confident and, you know, go through that motor learning curve where we get to, the point where they feel confident about what they're doing and it becomes autonomous. So the last two weeks of training, as I said, it's an acceleration into velocity, but they're self-guided sessions. So the guys warm themselves up, the guys take them through, uh, take themselves through the whole progression and then we'll assist if we need to. But I've, I've learned to take a step back 
And then if we need to, we video everything. So you go back to the video. Um, this year, I, I did something cool. We had kinematics from every day. Um, we had a guy, Ryan Grubbs, helped out a ton. Uh, Jarnus was a great help. Like Just getting kinematics on each guy so we can see the variables that are changing. So one of the biggest changes that we saw over the course of those eight weeks was hip projection distance. So it's how far the hip projected in each stride. Um, and then the other part we saw that was really helpful to, to see was touchdown distance was closer to the hip um, across, like just average across all strides. So um, really like the combine piece that I found is um, in the beginning, I was doing too much, um, trying to do too much, trying to make things, trying to prove my value to agents and players and everyone else. And then now I've gotten really comfortable with doing the exact amount that's needed, you know, and, and nothing more. And uh, I'll leave you with this. The last, you know, one thing that I was told like two years ago um, by like one of my mentors, he's like, the difference between healing and poison is dosage. So if you take one Tylenol, it could help you. If you take 30, then, you know, like, you might be looking at a hospital visit. So I've, I've played around with the dosage part. I'm still not there. I'm still learning. But um, we found that lower dosage in, in this case, and just very specific dosage has been uh, the right key. Yeah, and as you're going through it, kind of you think of then someone like Clint, who maybe hears all that, as you've talked about kind of towards the tail end. And, you know, for you, Clint, as there's obviously the elite levels that you're working with, the Olympians, you have national championships, things that you're preparing for. I mean, hearing someone talk through that, you know, what would then give you the ideas in the weight room about, okay, as we're kind of getting to those last stages, you know, how would you work towards those big events and making sure that your athletes are ready? I think he said a good thing about, especially the coaching piece. I love that because I do the exact same thing. Um, I was just talking to my interns because we're getting close to championships now about how less is more when we get in there, uh, when we get towards the end, um, because you don't want, you don't want the brain to take over what, what's happening like at this point. Like everything's been coached. You know what you need to do. Let me not give you more information. Right? Let's, let's not do that. Um, for us, same thing. The volume will come down. And we want to make sure the intensities go up. And if we're talking weight room specific, um, the load may come down, like when we're talking mass, but the intensity goes up when it, in form of speed. So the same way outside. So if you're doing less resistance, less resisted running, but you're going faster, the intensity is not going down. The intensity is going up um, from a neurological standpoint, from a mechanical standpoint, uh, from an orthopedic standpoint. So for me, we're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to make sure that limb speed is happening faster in the weight room. And that's when plyometrics get a lot closer to what they could look like on the track because we want to make sure that we can match up as fast as possible with what's going on outside because weight room just too slow right everything's happens too slow so that's when we get away from conventional weightlifting. yeah it's just really interesting to kind of hear obviously those two parts have to go hand in hand what's happening on the track and what's happening in the weight room and i've spoken with gabe about this you know when we zoom out then and for you derek if you were looking kind of over a year you know the one questions that we kind of had was as you kind of go, and a lot of times you see like eight or 12 week blocks of sprint training, and then what would you do following or when you really zoom out, do you run multiple blocks of accelerations throughout the year? Does it end up blending a bit more as there's maybe certain days of themes? Or is again, do you really want to transition where now it's more sports specific? So if you zoomed out, I mean, how would you kind of layer for an individual to say, let's just use football, that you would kind of go through these different blocks, whether it's off season, summer, and then microdosing for that part of the season, which I know you've spoken and produced a lot about. Yeah, I just want to say that I think Clint has the hardest job in strength and conditioning. Like working for track and field is is unique. I know my friend Kaba Tolbert, who's at Harvard, 
um, he doesn't even really use his strength coach because he does his own planning because he it's so integrated. So if, if somebody trusts Clint, um, you know, remember, I remember going to, to different schools 20 years ago, Clint, and uh, um, they would have like in football, they'd have like, oh, best power clean, the top five, right? You don't see that in a track weight room. You, nobody gives a damn about those those numbers, right? Because he is going to be evaluated on how they run on the track, not by what they power cleaned or so it's a very very difficult position where he wants to be successful in the weight room but that success is represented by what happens on the track and maybe that should be a model for all sports which is which is very interesting so sorry i just had to say that clint (laughs) i appreciate that yeah i think a big piece of that too is just kind of i don't look at the weight room as the end all it can't be yeah i had to kind of take the ego out and figure out like everything matters but how much does this really matter it can matter a lot in a bad way or it can matter a lot in a good way yeah charlie francis had a great story about a russian sprinter a female sprinter who was like winning world championships and then she married a, a hammer thrower and he looked at her weight program and said your weight program sucks i'm going to improve it right so he improved the weight program and she never ran the same again so i think the the reference was the the surgery was a success but the patient died so yeah we got to be careful of that all the time with our planning <laughs> i would say to answer your question nick I, I am looking for every opportunity to sprint as much as possible, not, not in a careless sort of way, but I, I just find that in a lot of sports, they're not hitting velocities and, and intensities in, a, in running uh, and sprinting enough. So we have all these detraining issues that less is uh, referred to, um, which are probably leading to these injuries as well. So from a purely preventative point of view i'm trying to get them to work on acceleration transition to max velocity and and even even though some people may say it's not relevant but even some speed endurance components that i think can transfer as well so if i have you know it's like if you ask the football coach how much time do you need for practice if you say you need four hours he'll say yes if you need six hours yes so in my case i will try to take as much time as i can to devote to running which i know is not happening elsewhere especially if I'm a consultant coming in, I'm trying to move everybody my way and maybe they'll give me half of what I'm asking, but I'm always trying to get people to run more and incorporate it as part of the warm up, um, and just build an accumulation of wealth. Like I always tell people I'll never own a Ferrari or a Lamborghini because I just don't make enough money to, to, to be able to support that. Right. So you have to accumulate enough wealth in terms of your training to be able to support these sort of micro doses here and there to spike and, and, and stimulate. Um, but if you don't have that accumulation of wealth, um, now you're, you're drawing from a bank account that really doesn't have much in it. So, um, that off season component of having those intensities, those velocities, and that overall volume is so critically important. Um, and I don't think people see it that way. They see is, Oh, we do two running days a week. And one of those running days is mostly agility and the other day is conditioning and we do a few sprints and I'm like, Oh my goodness, come on. You're missing out on, on the real gold there. Right. So I'm always trying to push people to hitting. I mean, and again, as a track coach, I know how important those volumes and those intensities are to knocking off a 10th or two tenths of a second and a hundred. So if I'm not hitting those volumes for my field sport athletes or close to those volumes, then I know it's not going to pay off. Those are all really good points and kind of less to you as well. I mean, again, you've kind of talked about you get certain guys right off the end of the season and then going to prepare for the combine. But if you did have to zoom out and you 
and maybe you do, so I don't want to misspeak, but have individuals for a full year, you know, do you run them through those multiple cycles? I guess, how much do you change maybe whether it's every eight to 12 weeks? Because again, that's generally how people view their snapshots of off season, winter season, however it may be. Yeah, no. And we've had like, we've had some unique athletes like Bob Sweaters and, you know, we've, we've had them for a full year or um, even just some of our NFL guys, like some of our top NFL guys we, we work with year round, like Michael Pittman. So typically the way like we look at the year is like beginning of the year, we're going to, we're going to make a change. Like every year we're going to focus on like one or two things. <clears throat> so for Michael Pittman this year, uh, the one thing we wanted to work on was the, his thigh range and his thigh angular velocity. So like how, how basically how far apart his knees were um, and making sure more of it was front side and then how quickly he can reverse that, that thigh back into the ground. Um, if you've ever watched him run routes, he has like these really choppy strides probably from doing cone drills for years. So that was one of the key, the key things we wanted to do. And then the outcome would be for him to run 23 miles per hour or he was at like 22, seven. So typically we'll, we'll technically work through those things at the beginning of the year. And, um, Essentially, there is we do we do a, a decent amount of sprinting, but we're preparing them for OTAs. So we're doing some more tempo volumes, we're kind of easing into it and really using that time to be more technically focused. Uh, post OTAs, when the guys come back, um, we start to really ramp up, you know, velocities, uh, repeat sprintability, uh, putting in more like curvilinear running, uh, decelerations, and just accumulating that volume of accelerations, decelerations change the directions before they get into uh, camp because they're expecting to see high volumes in camp. We don't want it to be a shock to their system. So, um, you know, that's the part where we really work on that ability. And then from there, as they get into the season, typically like, you know, guys will know, like, you know, if they're not hitting within 90% of their peak speed in a game, you know, they're, they're going to try to hit that one or two times throughout the week. So that's where like the minimal effective dosage will come into play where, Either they're going to dribble to a high velocity or they're going to go out and they're going to uh, build up to a high velocity and then a couple of accelerations, especially our practice squad guys. Like we had a, we had a decent program for our P squad guys this past year where they're doing um, a few resisted runs, a few build ups and a few excels every game day morning. Um, and was, it was really nice during the COVID year. What happened was, you know, guys got COVID, guys got hurt, guys uh, opted out. So a lot of those P squad guys ended up playing like later in the season, like week 10, week 11. And, um, you know, they were able to, to, to maintain those qualities throughout the season. So that when they got in, they were, you know, were detrained. So um, typically that's how we break the year up is like a learning phase and then accumulate and then we just maintain. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And for you, Clint, because again, a lot of your work now is just primarily with the weight room, uh, track and field, I know swim and golf or some of your other teams as well. But from your experience as Texas, if you were to transition to a different role from all the knowledge that you learned with your track team and just being on this panel talking to the others, you know, what would you then say, like, okay, when I would to program speed training for these team sport athletes, like what's a big takeaway that from your experience you think we would then implement or design with? Yeah, a little story, actually. My first two teams I worked with was men's basketball. Um, and my coaches loved the fact that I taught the guys how to sprint. Um, but the biggest thing for me is like, obviously team sport athletes are going to be in acceleration considerably more often than top velocity. Um, so for, we did a ton, a ton of acceleration work specifically first step. Um, and we got really good at first step from a bunch of different angles, a bunch of different takeoff positions. 
Um, and we worked on those things and then we got really good at those and then we reinforced those and we kept working on those. And then we started to progress to the second step, to the third step, to the fourth step. Uh, next thing you know, we were getting down the court, 94 feet, pretty good. Um, so for me, just trying to make sure we can, whenever we have the sport happening, especially if it's chaotic um, on a field or on a court, um, I want them to be in positions before it's happening at a super high speed in like a game competition setting. So we reinforce all kinds of different patterns to make sure that they're ready for whatever they're going to see on the quarter on the field. Cool. So I think uh, we're going to get to a couple of the Q&A ones here. We got a few more rolling in and appreciate you guys kind of answering them as we go. Um, so if you're somebody who is an attendee who's asked a question and hadn't been answered yet, uh, we're going to do our best to get to it. If we don't get to everything, I know we shared some of the emails from our attendees in here. Uh, they're very gracious and more than willing uh, to help out with that. So um, I believe we had one of the questions uh, that was first directed about team sports and sprinting. I know, Clint, you kind of just hit on that. Um, we had another question here from uh, Brandon Valley and Clemson. This one was specifically for Les and Clemson Sports Science. Uh, with the 1080, do you use speed limit option to reach B opt or specific velocity, or do you set the resistance based off the load velocity profile and adjust as needed during the session? Yeah, so um, I just sent that sheet over if I understand correctly. So what we do is we track the peak velocity to each of those each of those loads. So that sheet I that sheet I sent over is the load. Um, it's like the it's a filter to transition the load from 1080 weight to actual pound. Um, the kg the kgs has like it's it's more of just like the horizontal from the uh, spin wheel, so it's not like exact. So we just created that and we just went off 25, 50, 75 percent body weight in a free run, and then we just plotted. We plotted those and then found the 50% um, feed deck, which is like the optimal velocity we're looking for. So we, we typically work on four loads in training is 50, 60%, which would be pushing. Uh, typically, we do 60% V deck is pushing, 50%, we do pulling. Uh, 25 would be like speed strength. And then we use 10. And 10 would be like more of a technical stimulus uh, for high velocity running. So that, that, let me know, like, you got my number, I think. So just let me know if that one works. But that sheet is just exactly how we use it. All right, thanks. I appreciate uh, the question. We have another question from uh, Jake Mendoza in the off-season and in-season training in the weight room. What are the bang for your buck exercises you guys continually to use in your program? Clint, I'm going to go to you on that one. Um, I hate to say that it depends because it really does. Um, depends on what sport we're looking at. Depends on what event we're looking at. Um, for me, I'd say, what are your outcomes? Like, what outcomes are you looking for from a force demand standpoint? Um, then also, I'll go back to what we were talking about earlier with complementing the training. Right now, we want to make sure we can get the outcome that we're looking for without taxing the tissue, right? If we're running at high velocity, we don't want to be drained by the time they either come from or get to the track um, from a weight room session. So how can we find those things without taxing the system too much um, to, make, to where we're not getting the quality session um, when we're doing high velocity stuff outside? So I know that's very vague. So if you want to get in that more, throw another chat in and I can, I can get into it for a little bit more. Yep. Just a reminder, if you guys have any questions, please feel free to drop them in there right now as we're looking at them. Another question from Tristan. What resources do you suggest for developing speed in adolescent team sport interval athletes like basketball, soccer, football, and et cetera? 
Um, I think all three of these people are a great resource. You can take a look at any of their things. Um, we'll make sure that at the end of this, uh, when we post this to YouTube, we'll make sure to include links to all the personal pages and professional pages, as well as social media links for our panelists, as they do a really good job providing a lot of that information. Um, and Clint, is that you answering the question right there? Oh, great. So dynamics of skill acquisition and Keith Davids. Um, do any of our other panelists have any other resources they'd like to recommend? Yeah, just get them to sprint. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know if you need resources. Like, I mean, a lot of these sports that don't spend time on, you know, repeat sprints and, and quality in those sprints. And, you know, um, I, I, you know, I'll ask them, what do they do for running? And they'll do longer stuff and, they're not really working on acceleration. And so I think, you know, just, you know, I don't know, five sets of 10 meter sprints, you know, times three or something like that to start something, you know, just work on acceleration and get them competing against each other if they're kids. And it, it, it definitely works. So I don't think yeah, there's any. I, and I'm going to second that. Like, I think people get really fancy with that group. It's like um, if I were to go train to run a marathon, but I want it to be the most technically sound and I just wanted to be perfect at the technique and I practice technique all day but I never ran the miles like running a marathon is gonna hurt and I'm not actually gonna finish the marathon so like in this case a lot of the adolescents and youth I see them doing a lot of drills and a lot of stuff but they really just need the physical stimulus of and you know repeatedly doing it yeah I had a friend who ran a she prepared for a Ironman triathlon and she, her body seized up at 13 hours in and she came to me after in the run, the last phase. And she came to me and said, what did I do wrong? I'm like, well, have you ever done 13 hours of anything continuously? No. What was, what's your longest? No, I think I did a four hour bike ride. I'm said, you, you just won, right? The next time you do it, now you'll get past that. Right. Of course she did another one and she finished it. So yeah, you got to get out there and just do it and, you know, see what happens. And, you know, we, we all learn by trial and error, but I think a lot of people just aren't getting out there and doing it. So we just had another question come in from Ian. Uh, he asked, when it comes to improving running technique in athletes who have really stiff shoulders, almost as if they karate chop at the elbow, what kind of drills have you seen to be helpful? Kneeling and seated arm action, question mark. Anyone want to give it a go? Yeah, I think, I think there is this. And I, my friend in Australia, Mike Hurst, always talks about this. There's some coaches that say you got to stay at 90 degrees at the elbow. And I think that creates a lot of problems because the only way you can do that is your, your shoulders lock up and you're, you look like this. And there has to be some understanding that there's an opening up at the elbow as you go down past your hip um, because it, you're kind of waiting for that foot to hit the ground and, and the arms can go faster than the legs. So there has to be a timing component to it. So that's why it opens up and it does allow you to relax a bit more. So <clears throat> I think through drills and... <clears throat> And submaximal runs, you have to kind of, you know, tease that out and allow that relaxation to happen. If people are constantly working at maximum effort, you know, you're not going to get to that point. So submaximal runs, drills, like Les was saying, break it down, put it back together, break it down, put it back together. But, you know, there is a way to get there, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. And that's Mike Hurst out of Australia. Yeah. Um, Another question just came in from Daniel Schreiber. Technique is technique, but it breaks down with fatigue. How do you train for sport-specific muscle endurance to maintain technique so it does not break down or breaks down more slowly? 
I can kind of go after this one real quick. So actually something I've been playing with this year, I don't have any science to back it up, um, but it seems to be working. But for like at the end of a 400, if you watch a lot of kids that are fatiguing fast, like they usually go lordotic, that butt pokes out and they start to round a little bit. So for me, I feel like QL isn't trained a ton. Um, so for us, we've done a huge amount with our 400 guys and our like mid distance runners with um, like overhead carries. We've done a lot of that. Like if we're doing a seated shoulder press, I've changed that to a standing shoulder press just to get a little bit more fatigue resistance in the QL and that whole post chain side seems to be working really well for us. I don't know if it's doing anything or not, but there's different ways to like stress the system to get you to actually be in the same positions that you may be in outside. So it's been really cool for me to kind of play with. Um, there's just different ideas to get creative with for sure, but definitely obviously running those things and feeling that fatigue and feeling that and working through that is obviously important. I remember running 400s in high school and it felt like my back was seizing up and my glutes were going <laughs> to like, you know, and then I watched some guy run the world record and he's like dancing across the line and waving to the crowd. I'm like, what's he doing? Right. So, yeah, and you guys brought up some good points earlier. Something I want to hit on it was a little bit of the detraining. You talked about acceleration, unless you had mentioned that in Derek a little bit. And then also, when you guys talked about your um, return to performance protocols, um, I just want to second that or third that. Um, we had United Case when I was at University of Washington, we had a baseball player, and we we're doing the traditional rehab um, with athletic trainer, you know, strength exercises, isometrics, and um, we kind of ignored for the most part in his rehab, getting back to exactly what the mechanism of injury was, which was sprinting. And I looked at some of Derek's stuff and it was very helpful. So Derek, I want to thank you right now for that, because he was able to get back and play very at a very high level. He's playing professional baseball now, but we went right to, Hey, what are you able to handle from a vertical standpoint? And then slowly progressing into some of our more, uh, horizontal movements, um, with force and then with some speed and adding some velocity there. So. These guys have great resources out there. I did that just from Googling and, and looking around at some pages and, and stealing some things. So I highly, highly recommend you guys give these guys a follow on their social media. You're going to find some great things um, that you can at least roads you can go down to start learning and maybe ask some more questions or change maybe uh, the way you traditionally think. So um, another question that we kind of have prepared, uh, it looks like we can get to that right now. And if you're an attendee and you got a question that hasn't been answered yet, just please repost it and we'll try to get to that as we have a couple more minutes for questions. Um, handling challenge of a number of athletes in a large group setting in space with equipment. I know, Derek, you had mentioned just a little bit about splitting up, let's say, a football team. Uh, okay, you got 150 athletes, five coaches, go ahead, uh, 30 for each coach. But um, advice for anyone who might be thinking, yeah, this is great for when you're working with a one-on-one -on -one or, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this stuff and learning at it, but how about when it's one coach and 20 athletes? Like what's the most efficient way for me to run a large group through sprint specific training um, and all the things that go into that? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, some of the traditional approaches is you put all 30 of them on the line and you get them to do drills. Now I have to watch 30 people at once as opposed to putting them in rows <clears throat> where you can digest it a little more and you can provide feedback. And we would always have you know, a coach, uh, telling them what to do. And then another coach further down the line, as they came through, Hey, you work on this, you work on this. Then they got back in line again and then tried it again. So we always tried to break it down so that it was easier for us to assess and provide prescriptions. Um, and then I was saying to somebody about, uh, resistance work, like it's nice to have lots of sleds, but if you have 150 athletes, I don't know how many sleds you have to have to make that work. And then 
what weight everybody needs. And so I just use resistance bands and I wasn't a resistance band guy, but we're doing like early acceleration for five yards and get working on posture and, and resistance bands are fairly cheap. And now you have engagement between the two athletes that have to partner up. And so there's different ways of doing it to get people, you know, kind of switched on and making sure that you can digest all of the information coming to you as you're watching them. But I think, I think you just have to be patient. I think there's this, there's this, uh, there's this idea in strength and conditioning, or maybe it comes from other sports that everybody has to be moving all the time. And I, I had that from coaches who come to me and says, Hey, these people are standing around. You know, I thought we were working on speed. I'm like, exactly. You know, some people have to rest in between their runs. Right. You know, and this was a, this was a baseball coach. I'm like, have you ever watched a baseball game? It's a lot of standing. Right. So, you know, so there's lots of weird stuff out there where you're just like, okay, just got to get through this and then just focus on what I know works. Right. So yeah, you'll see a lots of insanity out there, but just be patient, take the time that you need to take and, and don't worry about what other people are thinking. Yeah, that's a great answer. And, um, I think one of the areas, I guess, in, in 2022 now that we have is we're dealing with a lot of tech that's out there. Um, there's a lot of different ways to measure things. You know, Derek, you say a little bit old school, you'll throw the GPS on sometimes, but a stopwatch and some cone works for you. Um, maybe for less or, or any of you guys, uh, best bang for your buck tech or pieces of tech that you really like that you found to be beneficial in terms of training your athletes. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a loaded question. Um, cause there's always a good, better, best situation. People are like, man, I can't afford a 1080. I'm like, cool. Well, grab a resistance band, go to a hill. Like there's, there's always something you can do. And obviously like, you know, the 1080 is great, but we don't bring the 1080 out every day. And if you have a big group, it's not going to work with 50 kids. Um, so, you know, if you know your goal, like my goal is to do a heavy acceleration day, um, you know, the principles and you know that, you know, you can figure out ways to get around it. So go up a hill. Um, you could do like very short accelerations with maximal intent with big rest, or you could do resistance bands. So like, that's, that's a preface to what I'm about to say. Um, I would say the, the best tool that we've, I don't know, I don't even know where to start. There's probably three, I should say. 1080 obviously has been great. Um, you know, at the elite level, at the top level, but it's not something we implement with the kids all the time. Uh, GPS has been a good feedback tool. Um, you know, the accuracy of GPS is always something to question. So looking at peak velocities from there, you got to take it with a grain of salt, but it's been good in estimating volumes that we're doing, uh, plan volume versus actual volume, uh, maybe looking at intensities and speed zones. That's been great. Um, and then the third one is output. Output's an IMU, just an accelerometer. So we've been able to, you know, get tons of kids through CMJs, like, uh, jumps, RSIs, those types of things, um, and be able to put like an objective number to it. So those are really the, the main three pieces of tech that I've been using. And then um, one that I'm starting to use more, which I'm pretty ignorant in, is uh, muscle data from Strive. So looking at EMG data from athletes that are sprinting. But I am probably really far behind in comparison to the guys on here looking at EMG data. So um, something I'm learning and, and progressing through so less i put a pair of those shorts on and i was looking at my ipad going and everything's just going right and you're just like i don't yeah. know what i'm looking at <laughs> yeah yeah I'm, I'm i'm trying to learn i'm trying to learn uh, i know it's valuable i know it's valuable i just can't 
uh, figure it out. But one of the other things about tech also is like, you know, people will spend tons of time learning and learning how to use the tech. And a lot of that time could be used actual coaching and being out in the field and getting better at coaching and spending time coaching. And you're going to learn a lot more from coaching and doing things like person to person than you will from technology. And technology is like a really good supporting cast. But, you know, as I've found the hard way sometimes, like it could also take you away from like the interaction you have with the athlete, looking at a screen versus like watching them walk back. And you're like, okay, this tech is telling me they're tired. I could have just asked that person if they're tired. You know what I mean? <laughs> so um, I, I think that's something that, you know, I've definitely learned from my mentors over the past years, like use tech when you need to. Um, obviously, but you don't need to test every day. Uh, you don't need to track every day. Like just be out there and get better at coaching, you know? Yeah, that's a great point. And we got time for about two more questions here. Um, I think Derek, I think you're going ahead and uh, responding to that one. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, here's a good question. I love asking people is if you could go back and give yourself some advice, your younger coach self, some advice, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Clint, you, you got this one. Clint, how old are you? 32. Uh, me too. I'm 32. Uh, I think it's fun. The cool thing for me is I get, I get, we get a new intern crop three times a year. So we get to see a lot of like first time coaches. Um, and it's the pitfalls are the same pitfalls they were when I was going through it 11, 12 years ago. It's, it's all the same. Um, there's so much new information and you want to just dive into everything. I think it's, it's getting really solid and like a really solid foundation. You can go down rabbit holes and I do that all the time, but definitely making sure you have a good solid foundation. Um, and then like getting really good at one thing, right? Like get really, really good at one thing <clears throat> while you're learning other things. Um, but don't spread yourself too thin because you're never going to learn it all. You can't be, you can't be a man of all knowledge or um, otherwise you're going to be try to be a jack of all trade or master of none. Um, I think you have a little bit more value uh, when you when you're really really good at something. That's awesome. Last, yeah, no, that's a good one. Um, and I can definitely attest to that. Like, started off like really as a strength coach, and then kind of moved moved towards speed. Um, I would say like now now that I'm a father, um, I'm looking at coaching a lot differently, and. In the beginning, coaching was like a very personal thing. It was like I was a failed athlete, so it was almost like the first two years out of coaching. You're trying to trying to get status in the coaching game. You know, you're trying to you're trying to go and coach this person and that person, and you're running around doing all these things for free, trying to get a name out for yourself. But that's not what true coaching is. Like true coaching is like investing in people and developing them, no matter what level they're at. Um, and now that I'm a father. It's like I can I can look back and, and can really see like I was always chasing the next thing and always had blessings in front of me. And I didn't really always take advantage of the blessings that were in front of me. Um, you know, I, I have kids now like you know, Katarina Makaro has been with me since she was eleven. She's like incredible soccer player. She's like twenty twenty-four now. So that was like one athlete I've taken all the way through, which has been a great experience. But you know, being a dad now like I can't coach during the afternoons because I got an 18 month old baby so four to three to seven was like my coaching time for 10 years and now I don't have that and I miss it and um looking back I I, I miss those times and I wish I had 
really grasp onto the blessing that I had I, to coach those kids at that time. So that's the biggest thing. And I think about that probably every day. So, yeah. Yeah. And Les, I know you share a lot of that too on your social media page and, and some of the things you're going through. So we appreciate uh, you sharing that. Derek? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I don't know, I wouldn't change anything, but I would certainly tell, encourage people to go out and train somebody in a sport like track and field or um, swimming, something where there's a, you know, you have an, an end, a time that you're trying to hit or, or something competitive like that, because now everything that you do, you know, there's not these intangibles, like, you know, if somebody can hit a basketball shot or, you know, if you have a good quarterback on your team it's, it's, you're, you're naked, you're out there. And the, the person you coach to run the hundred meters or the 400 meters, all your training is going to be witnessed in their race result. So I think that's a really, um, that's a really good way to hone your skills and know exactly. And you could be in control of the running. Like in my case, I was in control of the running, the weightlifting, the rehab, the recovery, I controlled everything. And I never got paid as a track coach. So there was a sacrifice, but I think you have to put yourself out there sometimes. Go help out at a local high school. Um, you know, put yourself out there and put yourself in that position. And you're going to fail a bit and you're going to succeed. And you'll, you'll understand how that works and what you've gained from that. So I think that's, that's very valuable. Yeah, that's some yeah, great advice. I, I agree. Thank you to three of you. Go ahead, Les. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, like you have to, everybody thinks as a coach, like you're supposed to just win all the time, but like, you learn so much from those failures. And those failures hurt. Like I've I've failed before on national television. Like <laughs> big failures and I've had big wins. But the failures are the ones that like drive you and, and help you grow. And a lot of times people want to get things perfect before they get out and try it. When it's like you just need to get out there and just test it and be exposed and be vulnerable and then get feedback, you know. Failure's only a failure if you don't grow from it, right? Yeah. You don't learn from it. That's right. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you, guys. Um, well, Clint's got a Justin Bieber concert to get to, and uh, Les has got some draft festivities to get to. Guys, we have one more question for you. Um, this is something we love to ask everybody. Uh, it's something um, that we like to ask is, what does your own training look like now? Is it practice what you preach? Are you training for something specific? Are you experimenting? What does it look like? And we're going to follow that same order. We're going to go with Clint, Les, and finish with Derek. Depends. Right now, I'm living through hotels, so I got to get in what I can. Uh, when I'm when I'm when I'm here, I definitely try to practice what I preach because they're about the age where they'll try to challenge me a little bit. So I got to let them know what's up, just a little bit every now and then. Uh, but yeah, I still train like an athlete. Yeah, I'm reaching the age where I'm starting to get beat. I used to I used to race all my pre-draft guys like day one, and I'm starting to get beat. So, um, but no, I trained for more like health. Like I think as a, in my twenties, I trained to beat myself up and like, it was all about look. And, you know, now I'm like prioritizing sleep, um, prioritizing diet, like being, being pretty strict on that. And then just making sure I get four lifts a week and three runs, um, in a, in a recovery session. And I'm pretty flexible outside of that. Like I, I don't really, I haven't really like written a lifting program. I kind of just, just do it like you know, I feel, which is probably not the best thing to do, but, um, the running is, is a little bit more structured. I run Hills once a week. I run tempos once a week and then I sprint maximally once a week. Um, and I just maintain, sometimes I sprint maximally one rep and I'm done. I'm cooked. Sometimes I can get three or four reps, but, um, yeah, just kind of off of feel, but, um, 
I'm getting beat by these kids in these uh in these camps I'm doing, and I'm not happy about it. So I'm gonna step up my training. <laughs> yeah, and Derek. Yeah, well, I'm I'm quite a bit older than these two young fellas, uh, so I'm turning 53. Um, I I tried the like let's go run a 5k because my wife's a distance runner. And that wrecked me. It just absolutely wrecked me. So you've got to know what your strengths are. And that is not my strength. Um, so I'm back to just doing short sprints, 10, 20. And it's the healthiest I've been since I got back to that. Uh, I don't try to lift heavy anymore because I, I seem to be getting it out of the sprints. I like running a hill, sprinting a hill. Uh, I, I find it keeps me safe because I can't hit a high velocity to really get myself into trouble. But that's been the best thing is doing some sort of repeat sprint workout maybe the odd tempo session. Um, I do this thing where I do these 10 by 10, where you just do 10 yards, decelerate 10 yards times 10. And that keeps me really fit. So that's, that's, yeah, I put, put your money where your mouth is, I guess. So. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, I'll always love hearing what people are doing, but uh, that's all the time we have allotted. A big thank you to everybody that joined us tonight for the KES and a huge, huge thank you to our three panelists. We appreciate their time and willingness to share their knowledge and expertise. Please, please, please give them a follow on their respective social media pages, and we'll be sure to include the links to their pages and professional sites as well when this is up. The discussion will be available publicly on the Kaiser Fitness YouTube page, and the audio will be up on Spotify as well under the Kaiser Education Series. We hope you'll join us in two weeks from now for our third KES panel. Thank you, everybody, and good night.